What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. One of the most ever-present forms of poetry is the haiku. This simple form is one of the most used in schools, and I'm sure that most everyone has taken their hand to writing one at one time or another. Traditionally, this form, which contains three lines with 17 syllables written in a 5-7-5-syllable count pattern, is also a favorite of authors of poetry for children. A book of haiku I enjoy is Gaiku, A Year of Haiku for Boys by Bob Raska and illustrated by Peter Reynolds. This book is a simple exploration of boys in nature that captures real experiences throughout a year in wonderfully crafted haiku. Another fun book of haiku is Haiku by John Muth, which is about a panda named Ku. So you'll note that the title of the book is saying hello to the panda and is not saying the name of the poetry form. It's H-I space Ku. Hi, Ku. I love the character of Ku and how each of the poems uses the poetry form to weave in the alphabet, the seasons, and the adventures of Ku and his friends. But if these great books are not enough, there are other great books that explore haiku and use the form to tell all kinds of interesting stories. A great example of this is Lee Wardlaw's book, Wonton, A Cat Tale Told in Haiku. This tale of connected haiku poems tells the story of a cat from the time it is adopted at the shelter until it settles into its new home. This is really connected haiku at its best because each poem keeps the form intact, but each poem then connects to the whole story. Another very innovative application of haiku is Chris Crow's novel, Death Coming Up the Hill. This novel in verse is constrained by syllable count as the main character, Ash, recounts his perceptions of the Vietnam War, not only by writing haiku, but also dedicating one syllable to each of the soldiers killed in the deadliest year of the war. So the book contains 976 haiku with 16,592 syllables, which is the number of soldiers killed in Vietnam in 1968. So if our chat here at Rachel's World has made you eager to look up a little bit of poetry to spice up your day, you may want to take time to check out these and other great books filled with haiku. Statistics say that one in four people have mental illness, and one in 25 suffer so badly from it that it disrupts their professional and personal life. Many suffer in silence. They're afraid or ashamed to tell others for fear of the stigma. Rachel visits with young adult novelist Robison Wells about his journey through mental illness and the passion he has for speaking out on the subject, especially in his books, articles, and social media. Robison Wells is the award-winning author of Blackout, Variant, Airships of Camelot, and others. Robison lives in the Rocky Mountains in a house not too far from elk pastures with his wife Erin and their three children. Wells suffers from five mental illnesses, as you will hear him explain, and is an outspoken advocate for others like him. Here's Rachel and Robison. We're in studio today with Robison Wells. Welcome. Thank you. 
I am excited to talk to you today because you are very passionate about a very important subject that I just don't think gets enough open airtime or talking about, or people just are a little nervous about it, and that's mental illness. So not only have you had struggles with it, but you're also writing about it. So let's talk a little bit about that world and and how we can help people understand it better. So tell us a little bit about your experiences. Sure. Uh, about, it was 2011, so about five years ago, I started getting panic attacks. Not small ones and not seldom. I started getting them very frequently and they would be bad. And I couldn't take it. I, I couldn't be, I mean, I felt so trapped and I needed to figure out a way out of that. And uh, I was diagnosed pretty soon with a severe panic disorder uh, that turned into agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is basically the fear of having a panic attack. So I would have panic attacks, but I also had this constant prodding from my brain saying, don't try anything. Uh, You're going to get trapped. You're You're going to have a meltdown in a public place. Soon enough, it cost me my job and that kind of thrust me into writing full time. Um, And it has been a struggle. It turned into depression and then turned into the worst one of all, which is uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, which if you've ever seen it on TV, it's not like that. (laughs) Um, Obsessive compulsive disorder is very – very bad. It's very violent. It's very uh, – by far the worst of the five mental illnesses I have. The fifth one of which is called trichotillomania or dermatillomania depending on who you're talking to. It is a compulsive behavior where you uh, dig into your skin or in my case into my scalp. So I had all of these mental illnesses. I still have all these mental illnesses. It has been very tough and it has taken five years, but I am finally now almost under control. So things are things are better. Um, but it came through a lot of medicine. It came through a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and it came through a very long-suffering wife. <laughs> And I I love that sense that it's there's some control there, but it really you're not cured. This hasn't mm-hmm. gone away, and I think a lot of people take that perspective with mental illness as oh, it's going to be cured, or it's like a disease that that will eventually go away. But right. it really isn't. It's really something that you have to deal with on a very daily basis. Yeah, the thing is, is that it becomes easier the more that you fight it. Um, so for example, one of my obsessive compulsive behaviors, I wasn't working at all because I would watch cops all day, uh, because it was always on TV. And for some reason, that was what my obsession was, is I would watch cops all day. My doctor, he asked me how I finally did it. And I said, my wife put her foot down (laughs) and she said that she wouldn't allow it anymore. And, uh... We got rid of the cable channel that Cops is on. 
Way to put your foot down, wife. <laughs> yeah. uh, stuff like that. Uh, and I, I have dealt with it. Um, she reads more on the topic than I do, and she's always there as a sounding board. Uh, but also, I have become friends with people who are suffering from the same thing, both fans. I get a lot of uh, – because I write for young adults. I get a lot of, of teenagers saying that they cut themselves uh, or they participate in some other kind of self-harm. They write to me looking for help and and I think looking for validation. But the fact that they are opening up to me and I don't I don't claim to give any great advice, but I love it when they contact me because it means that they are starting to admit it openly to people that they don't know. Um there hasn't been a time where I've written an article about it and I write a lot of articles about it where I don't get emails directly after it saying, thank you so much for talking about this. This is something I deal with, but I've been too afraid to talk about it to anyone. So it's very gratifying on that level. But it is it is therapy that, that helps me as much as it helps them. And I really love that you're you're taking your writing and reaching out to that audience, particularly of teens and preteens and these kids that are reading your books, because that is particularly devastating if you're dealing with these kinds of mental illnesses at that age and you may feel isolated and not have the loving wife who can put their foot down right. in your life. And your newest book that you're working on right now is going to deal directly with these issues. So tell us a little bit, give us some little teasers about sure. what's coming up. What's coming up. Uh, it's, the, it's titled These Lifeless Things. Uh, it is, I write science fiction. So all my books are going to be science fiction regardless of the fact that this is a book about mental illness. Uh, the main character is a girl who has all of my symptoms. I thought – I mean they always say write what you know. I'm going to write what I know. Uh, the main character has all of my problems and uh, she's 17 and they're on this backpacking trip gone for a couple of weeks and when they come out uh, of the canyon, there has been a massive pandemic and everybody's dead. <laughs> and science fiction. <laughs> so, so, so there's the science fiction aspect. But it is a story about her dealing with her mental illness in this new world. I mean they're trying to do other apocalyptic stuff. They're trying to make sure they have water and they're trying to – to find food and they're trying to create some kind of sustainable lifestyle. But she is going and breaking into pharmacies to make sure that she has the medicine that she needs. She is trying to track down where her uh, service dog has gotten to now that her uh, family is dead. She's dealing with horrible panic all the time because – Everyone is dealing with it and everyone deals with it in their own way. One of the girls develops post-traumatic stress and everyone is forced to reconcile this awful thing that has happened. And uh, it is 
my favorite book. I love it. <laughs> I think that's really interesting because a lot of books that deal with mental illness, particularly in young adult fiction, are the more realistic types where we have people who are dealing with it and they go through the struggles and the treatments and this type of thing. But I love dealing with it in this kind of science fiction context, because I think it's going to give us a different perspective. So how do you think that that science fiction context provides a different perspective to how people deal with mental illness? Well, I think that it provides a safe and accessible way to talk about all of these problems. And now my hope for this book is that it will not be read like so many contemporary books and they're they're great. Excellent books, yeah. Great that deal with with mental illness or or other things like that. But I think that this will be a very accessible book to the mainstream. It's not a book for kids who want to read a sad book about mental illness. It is a book that has a lot of adventure and it has a lot of tension and it has all of the great things that make people want to read a book. And there just happens to be a character who is mentally ill. Yeah, I, I love that context because I think part of it to me is the fact that we need to understand that this really is just kind of natural part of what some people deal with. I'm really, really grateful for the time that you spent today talking about this wonderful book. It's a, it's a great connection for all of us. And I'm just really grateful for your open honesty. Thank you so much for being open and honest about your challenges, your personal challenges. And hopefully just listening today, there's listeners out there who will be able to feel a little bit better about their challenges or the challenges that their families or people are facing in their own lives. So thank you so much for your time oh, today. No problem. And to any of those people who are listening, I always say find someone to talk to. And if you can't, then talk to me. Uh, my website, robisonwells.com. Anyone who emails me about mental illness, I am more than happy to talk to them. Well, I appreciate that offer and hope that our listeners will take you up on that. If, yeah. if there's some, some one they need to reach out to, you're right there for them. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Rachel Wadham talking with author Robison Wells about his struggle with mental illness and the healing that has come through his speaking out about the subject in his books, articles, and on social media. Next, Rachel visits with Angela Netterhand, a local high school teacher. She talks to Rachel about her work, teaching leadership skills, and why she feels these skills are so important for teens to learn. Angela is a TV broadcasting teacher at Salem Hills High School. Previously, she taught leadership principles and worked with multicultural students as they sought opportunities for community service. She studied at Westminster College and graduated valedictorian in the College of Technology and Computing at Utah Valley University. Here's Rachel and Angela. We're in studio with Angela today. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. You are a teacher at a local high school here, and one of the classes that you teach is kind of business leadership skills and, and getting the teens in your class to kind of start thinking about being leaders. And I think that that is a really interesting discussion, particularly in the context of our show with literacy and being able to, you know, how do we interact with the world and how do we listen and how do we engage and talk and speak with the world around us, which is essentially leadership kind of things. Mm -hmm. So let's chat a little bit about what you teach your students. So let's start with that. What What is it in this class that you teach your teens that 
constitute leadership skills? That's a great question. We have several different units inside this class. We had a unit on time management, then one on decision making, then one on communication skills and communication um, habits or methods. And it's so important because the students are facing these kinds of challenges anyway. And, you know, you think that what do they need to know about time management? Well, teenagers now are very overburdened. They have a lot on their plates and they need to know how to do good time management so that they can keep their stress levels down so they don't have emotional and mental breakdowns. I mean, it's really important for them to start to understand these these as they go into college because the more leadership skills they learn in high school, the better off they'll be in college. So why do you think it's important to go kind of in deeper into that theory? What kind of benefits did you see on the other end of that learning? Well, I think it helps them to maybe make more decisions. So there's one leadership style that's called situational leadership. And it's where you change your leadership style depending on the situation. And you look at the situation and then you say, okay, what would be the best response or what would be the best type of leadership for this particular situation? So I think just having them open up that themselves to the idea that they don't have to react automatically to something, but that they can take a second and take control of the situation and then decide how to react really gives them more autonomy and more um, confidence as they face everyday challenges. Well, and that really comes down to this essential here. A lot of these skills are just really kind of critical literacy, Mm -hmm. analyzing situations, being able to problem solving, being able to make those choices and decisions. So did you see your students kind of grow through that process throughout this class from a place where they may not be able to, to really make these kinds of decisions to to these theories and other things you learned really help them be better critical thinkers? Oh, yeah. In fact, in the class, one of the things that we did was we read seven, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens by Stephen Covey. Well, sorry, Sean Covey, Stephen Covey's son. And he did a great job making the seven principles applicable to teenagers. And when we first started off, I was like so worried that they were going to think it was cheesy and dumb because there's these goofy cartoons. And oh my gosh, they loved it. They loved this book. And I bought the workbooks that go with it so that they could write in their workbook and kind of journal their progress. Well, their workbook became like personal diaries. And I wouldn't I didn't collect them to read them because they they were guarding them. Like they would look at me like, you really want to look at this? And I would tell them, I'm not going to read what you wrote. I'm just going to look through it to see that you did it. And they were more comfortable with that. But they started to document their personal journeys and started to think about their lives in a new way. And at the end of the class, they would say things to me like, I've never had I've I've never thought about it this way or I've never had the ability to try and do things a different way. And I've loved – they loved this class. They just kept saying, I love this class, Mrs. Netterhand. I love how you teach it. It's going to be it's, – it's really helped me in my life. And I, I, I specifically asked them, has this really helped you in your life? And they all said yes. Yes, it helped me to, to face – challenges. And I love that sense. And so, you know, particularly for our listeners out there, if there's a class like this available yes. in your local high school, that might be a great thing. But that book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, is a great oh, recommendation yeah. because it really these kinds of experiences or this kind of understanding can really help us be self-reflective and really mm-hmm. analyze who we are and where our place is in the world. Yes. And I think that's sometimes really beneficial for teens, too, because they may not really look at their lives in that way. So did you see that kind of self-reflection as an empowering 
part of this whole class? Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. They were empowered to kind of think about their lives on their own to make decisions independent of their parents and to maybe talk about why uh, why they thought the way that they did or why they want to do the things that they want to do and how they can you know, we would we would strategize and I would say, say you want to take the car for this weekend for an activity. How are you going to convince your parents that that's what you want to do and that that's a good idea? You know, and we would talk through these different situations and they would laugh their way. I mean, we would just have so much fun doing it. We We would laugh together. We would cry together. This book had interesting stories about serious issues like rape and and um, abuse and drug abuse. I mean, it, and they were deep, intense stories. And we would read these stories and sometimes it would get, we would get emotional. And I, sometimes I cried more than once reading this book with them. And I think because I had never read it before and we were reading it together, we read it aloud in class. So I did not make reading assignments because I felt it was more important that we have the experience of reading it together. So when we started reading, I had I have students in that class who are multicultural. So some of them don't read very well and some of them read excellently. So it just depends. And in the beginning, some of them were very timid about reading aloud, but by the end, everyone would read aloud and everyone's ability to read aloud improved drastically from the beginning of the school year to the end of the school year. And I love that sense that learning one thing or focusing on one kind of aspect or skill can really benefit other skills and other practical skills. And you had a structure of things that you were trying to learn together, but you built a a really wonderful community around those discussions. Oh, yeah. And it was so great, too. We tried to do service projects for the the class. So one of the service projects that we did was uh, Penny Wars, and they made Star Wars videos as our theme for for gathering pennies. We were going to defeat Darth Vader and leukemia by throwing pennies at him <laughs> and it was really, it was a really funny video and they did a great job of getting the school to participate and they raised some a, a significant amount of money for leukemia and um, lymphoma society that is wonderful too because i think that brings up another great way kind of tip that for parents and concerned adults out there is really maybe getting your teens outside of themselves Mm -hmm. and service and engaging in service is such an immense way to to maybe start helping us kind of get outside of our own minds Mm -hmm. and it had a really great impact it did not only just on you know, being able to contribute this wonderful money right. to a wonderful cause, right. but also on developing the character of your teens. Mm-hmm. So as they participated in that, did you see that kind of development? Did you see some more empathy or more kind of character traits develop through? I did see them start to use some of those uh, leadership skills that we were developing. So how I did it is I would, we would brainstorm the idea. And so we would all have a clear idea of what we wanted to accomplish. And, and this was all coming from them. I would say, what do you want to do? And they would say, well, we want it to be like this. We want to do this. We want to do this. And they're explaining to each other how they want it to be. Okay, perfect. So what do we need? We'd make a job list. And we'd make us. it was basically just a sheet of who's going to bring what, who's going to do what, who's in charge of what. And they would sign up for these different jobs and then they would do them. And it was great, you know. And if somebody dropped the ball and didn't follow through, we had to learn, okay, what sometimes if you drop the ball, people are depending on you and it doesn't turn out as great as you wanted. So, you know, it it was a learning experience for them on how to work together and also how to rely on people and who to rely on. (laughs) (laughs) Which can be tricky. It is tricky. tricky. (laughs) It is a little bit tricky. But it all works out. 
You know, and I love that. It's just a perfect note to close on because there is this wonderful thing that all teenagers can do. You know, they have such great potential yeah. and capability. And if we just believe in them and support them as adults, oh yeah, who knows where they're going to go in the future. So thank you so much, Angela, for your time today. Thanks. High school teacher Angela Netterhand talking about the importance of teaching leadership skills to teenagers. We finish up the show today with Mark Burns, producer of Thinking Aloud on BYU Radio, who offers some great tips on how to sneak a book into bed. Well, if you love children's literature and reading in general as much as I did when you were a kid, you realize that most children have some kind of limit, be it 9.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30, whatever it is. There's a time when your parents come into the bedroom and say, okay, you, you really need to turn the light off now, or you really need to put that book away. It's finally time for you to you know begin to sleep. And if you're also like most children uh, who have parents like that, you devise ways around it so that your parents don't know you have a book or have a flashlight or have a combination of the both, and you can continue to read for as long as you want to. And I would do this almost every night. I feel slightly guilty saying. And I pulled my friends on Facebook to see if they had as well and what strategies they used to be able to sneak books into bed. And here's some of the best ones I've had so far. The first one I have to say is from my daughter, who I did not know was doing this. She said that she figured out very early that we would always check around the head of the bed. So if she just hid the book at the foot of the bed, she'd be fine and we wouldn't see it. And the other thing she did was she said that she would hide it around the edge of the bed, in between the bed and the wall. Because even if we checked the whole bed, we would not normally look there. And then the other strategy that she devised, which you think I would have figured out as parent, but I didn't because this was not one of my strategies growing up, is that she would just put it in between the mattress and the box springs since we would look in the bed, but we wouldn't look down there. So she would do that, pretend that she was asleep, uh, turn the flashlight out, and then begin to read again once we had tucked her in for the night. So I have some other friends that told me that they would find different places around the house to do a similar kind of thing. The furnace room with the flashlight or up in a tree in the summer when there were plenty of leaves and you couldn't find things up there. Another person actually had a big stuffed kangaroo that, because it was a kangaroo, had a pocket in the front that you could hide things in. And she would use that pocket for contraband books and then you know hide it somewhere near her bed or put it near her bed so that she could pull the book out when she wanted to later on. I had lots of other friends as well that talked about uh, methods of illumination, how it was that they would get a flashlight. And all of this, of course, goes back to the fact that once upon a time, flashlights were quite big and quite clunky. They weren't that easy to hide. Uh, and there's been kind of an evolution to 12-volt battery, what I think of as Boy Scout flashlights and then to mini flashlights and survival flashlights and pen lights. And now you can do it, you know, with an iPod or a cell phone or whatever. But when you had to hide a big flashlight, it was not all that easy. One person said that they would actually hide the flashlight because it was so easy to find. They would hide it in the pillow. So even if the, the parents came to look, they would pick up the pillow and say, see, there's nothing down here. And it would be inside the pillow itself. Something like that. Another person mentioned that they were always sure to have thick covers because they had a giant flashlight. So they would like have triple quilts 
over them when they were reading so that, you know, the light wouldn't shine through. And the best of all was someone who talked about actually purchasing with his own allowance money some glow-in-the-dark silly putty, which his parents thought was only for the regular uses of silly putty, being silly and making things. And But he said he tried to use it as a clandestine flashlight, that he put it in front of a light all day long and at the end of the day removed it thinking that he would have a nighttime's worth of illumination that he could just read forever. Uh, and it turned out that even if you have it all day long that in front of a lamp, that the silly putty only glowed for a minute or so after he took it out. So he had great reading for a very short time. But by page two, he had to go and try to find a flashlight that he could steal. So... Anyways, all of these are different uh, methods that kids use, again, including my own kids, which I didn't know until I asked them just recently. But people used to read late into the night, well after they're supposed to be, because of the great joys of reading for kids as well as for adults. Mark Burns sharing some strategies on how to sneak a book into bed. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.